0: Luke chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 26. We've already seen the triumphal entry of Jesus in chapter 19, where he rides into town on, on a donkey. The people shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we're full on into the final, the final days of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus goes to the temple, turns over the tables of the money changers. He says, this is my father's house. My father's house shall be a a house of prayer. And as we go through these final chapters, these last five chapters of Luke, we're going to tell the story, but it's also important that we see the lessons that apply to us. We're learning about the ministry of Jesus and, of course, the crucifixion, and the resurrection, which is so important to understand. But we don't want to just study Bible stories or get the information without understanding the application. What does it mean to our lives? We're, we're not just getting more Bible knowledge. We want to know more of Jesus and thereby really our goal is to become like him you that was way early in luke's gospel that jesus says that that the disciples are becoming like their teacher it's a principle and so if i'm your teacher if i'm your pastor and i want you to know jesus i'm not standing here listening to myself talk I'm watching to see if it's working. I know I say that phrase a lot. And what that means is something very specific. I'm watching for change in your lives. I'm watching to see if you are becoming like Jesus. Because that's the whole point of doing this. So if that's not happening, then it's like planting good seed into soil. Something with the soil is not right. It needs to be broken up. It needs to be watered more. There's too many rocks in the soil. Uh, there is something about the process. And so my job is to sow the seed. I'm, hopefully I'm doing my job. Your job is to break up the soil and receive that seed into your heart and let it do its job. You see, it will do the job. The job is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. One of the lessons that is really stood out to me in these final days of Jesus' ministry is not only is he going to the cross and we're seeing what he's done for us, but also there is a shift of leadership. A shift from the priests and the rulers of Israel, their leadership over the people of God is being taken away because they weren't doing the job and it's being now given to the apostles. Now, we like that lesson, and that's throughout the Bible. It's throughout even church history. You can see times in the past 2,000 years where it seems like the church is just about to die, the church at large. There's corruption, formality, legalism. And just when it looks like the sun is about to set, God does something new. God works in the lives of the most unlikely people to raise up new leaders. And that is these ragtag group of disciples that don't look like real leaders. They are not from good families. They're not highly educated. They don't have money in their background. And in fact, the established leadership of Israel would look at them as essentially, you know, nobodies. In our fairly recent history, the very beginnings of Calvary Chapel was exactly that back in the late 60s when the church at large had formalized and it was very formal and this is the right way to do things, God was ready to do a new work. And the very unlikely, unqualified group that God chose from to be the new, a new group of leaders were the hippies. They didn't even have shoes. How could God use them? Now, not to retell that story again, but that's in our DNA as Calvary Chapel. It's in our, just our our way of thinking, as I often say it to pastors that I'm talking to, it's our Calvary culture. We have no, no question or no, no issue with the fact that God uses ordinary, weak people. That's me, and that is you. Now, that's who we are. Now, to bring that forward, I'm saying, now, Lord, who are those people in Albany? It's I'm sowing, and I'm going, okay, Lord, who is it? Who is it? Who are the the fishermen, the tax collectors? the whoever's that God is going to use. Now, you love that idea, amen? Now, as much as I love that, I can tell you that as a young man in my 20s, it was hard for me to see myself in the way that God saw me. Because you see, God was willing to take me a nobody and turn me into a pastor but i couldn't see it and if i couldn't see it then how can i act like it so i just want to throw that out to you who are not used to i feel like god is doing a work here and raising you up but and you're getting excited to serve more but begin to see yourself differently than you're used to seeing yourself. And that means if you're, the Lord is bringing you into leadership or some area of responsibility, that can freak you out. And you realize now you're an example to other people. And things you got away with before, you can't get away with anymore. Amen? Amen? Nobody said amen, okay? Why? You're thinking, why? Those I don't want these people to judge me. This is who I am. Well, all of a sudden, people are looking at you, and you're in leadership now. Maybe you don't even think you're a leader. I remember to, at 25, 26, 27, people started to look at me as a pastor, and I'm going, no, I don't think so. I play drums. Don't put that on me but other people could see what god was doing so while god is taking away the leadership from the jewish leadership and giving it to the apostles and, and you know in we also see them struggle don't we we're going to look forward to how peter denies the lord he can't he he he's not ready to fully step into that role I was thinking this morning about how we go through stages of life. You know how children are just so happy when they're little kids. You know, my youngest grandkids say the funniest, funniest things. And this has nothing to do with my message, but I thought I've got to work this into my message. Teddy is four years old. He's my youngest grandchild. After they went home from thanksgiving dinner he said to my to my daughter he said mom you know grandma is my favorite cousin so if we could keep them innocent like that forever especially when they become 12 and 13 and 14 suddenly It's all different. And you know, teenagers know everything. And it occurred to me many years ago that our spiritual growth is a little bit like that. Sometimes we grow a little bit and we think we start to know things. And you know what happens? We become judgmental. So if you're growing, you might pass through a little bit of a judgmental phase. Don't get stuck there. Move on into the the patient and gracious phase. So I kind of see that in this shift. There's a shift here. And it took me a lot of years to get comfortable seeing myself as a pastor. So you are the fishermen. You're the people who have come out of ordinary backgrounds, and we're going through this process of the Lord forming what he's doing in this church for the city of Albany, I pray. So we're going to pick up at Luke 20, verse 1, and we're going to see this tearing away of leadership as it's being shifted to the disciples. Verse 1 says, Now it happened... On one of those days, those days of the final week of Jesus' ministry, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him, Jesus, and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Verse 5, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they a- They answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So we're seeing the conflict heat up. He's turned over the tables. The people have shouted Hosanna. The Jewish leaders as well as the Roman leaders want Jesus out of the way because this man is doing too many good works. And so they're going to begin to try and trap him. These trick questions. Now, by what authority do you do these things? That's not a trick question. That's the right question and the question that they should be asking. Because many have come along claiming to be from God. And so it's right for them to say, by what authority do you do these things? But to ask that question presumes that they have the ability to discern a work of God, right? Because if they can't discern what is of God and what is not of God, how are they able to even continue in any kind of spiritual leadership? And that's important for you. We're here, we're standing here, sitting here together, and you're going, I, you know, what is God doing here? What is God doing in my life? And for you to even ask that question requires for you to be able to pay attention. And not to look for what you want to see. Oftentimes we look for what we want to see, not for what is happening. You come in with preconceived ideas, and if you don't see what you want to see you might miss what God is actually doing. And in order for you to receive the next answer to your prayer, God is gonna say, well, what did you do with what I told you yesterday? And that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, you want more information Let me even ask you if you're able to discern what's already happened right in front of you. Which they can, but they're not willing to admit to it. They're acting just like politicians. What's the right answer? They're like, you know, putting their finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing. They're not willing to commit, this is what we see God doing, even if it upsets our little world and our little structure. And that's key, that God works in your life at a time when you're ready to hear him. And frankly, that's when I can be the most help to a young pastor is when he is usually been in the ministry about five years, he's tried all of his ideas and he's come to the end and now he goes, I need help. Usually I don't get a call from a 25-year-old pastor because you see they still know everything. Or a 30-year-old Maybe not even a 35-year-old. They got to be in their late 30s, around 40 is when they start to get a clue. I thought I knew so much when I was 35. And so when you're ready and able to hear it, God will then say, here's what's next. And if you're not ever able to come to that moment, you will miss it. If you harden your heart to what God has already been saying, God will just then not give you the next things. It's a walk of faith. So the problem with this question isn't the question, by what authority do you do these things? That's right. The problem is that they are in rebellion against God. The problem is that really they think they're the ones who give out authority. That's a sure sign of of corrupt spiritual leadership. If they think they are the ones who hand out spiritual authority, that is a sign that something's wrong because where does spiritual authority it comes from? It only comes from God. Only comes from God. So, what is our job? And we, pastors, we ordain other pastors to be pastors. What is our job? We're not giving pastors the authority. We're only recognizing what appears to be the authority that God has already given. And so we just watch. Is God using their life? So these Jewish leaders think that they are the dispensers of authority. And you can hear that tone. What they're really interested in is protecting their system of power and profit. So Jesus says, if you will answer one question, then I will answer you. In other words, John's authority from God or from men Either answer gets them in trouble, and so they say, we can't tell. That was a lie. They could tell. And so Jesus says, I won't tell you where where my authority comes from. It's not that he's trying to keep it from them, but if they can't tell by now, after three-plus years of ministry, what else am I going to tell you? And he's not going to waste his time from them, uh, his time with them. So more understanding comes when we accept what God has already given. I want God to show me more. And for that to happen, I have to acknowledge, accept, and even obey what God has already given me to do. That's a basic principle or a lesson we find in God's word. At verse nine, we pick up, says, then he began to tell the people this parable. Now he's, the people have watched this interaction. And now Jesus is gonna turn his attention to the ordinary people. Began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to a vine dresser's, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also, and cast him out. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will reject him or they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard, killed him. And therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Now you remember why Jesus changes and tells these parables. Parable Does anybody not know what a parable is now? It means to lay alongside. Para, alongside. It is an illustration that is laid alongside of a truth. They can't understand the plain truth, so he lays alongside of it an illustration that will open their eyes, and that's exactly what was happening. The care for God's people has been neglected And so it's being taken away from them and given to others to take care of. Now, the vineyard is a very familiar illustration to the Jews. And in fact, it represents the nation of Israel. It's in Psalm 80, used by a man named Asaph. It says, "'You have brought a vine out of Egypt.'" You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take root, and it filled the land. A vine was taken out of Egypt, planted in other land that it would take root and grow, the land of Canaan, the promised land. It was later used by Isaiah in chapter 5, verse 7. It says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So this is, he's not just making up some story and hoping that they'll catch on. The vineyard throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the nation of Israel. A plant taken out of Egypt the ground prepared in the land of Canaan, planted there. And it also, God says in Isaiah, as that vineyard became wild and produced wild grapes that were unfit for consumption, God says, what else could I have done that I haven't done for my people? I chose the choicest vine, cleared the ground, cared for it, did everything I could, just like a a vineyard owner would take care of just the, the best, do all the preparations perfect to produce the best fruit. And God says, what else could I have done? And yet my people are wild. They're like wild grapes, a wild vineyard. So You just go through that parable that Jesus just told. The vineyard is Israel. The owner of the vineyard would be God the Father. The fruit that God is expecting to see in the lives of his people, love, joy, peace, righteousness, justice. The vine dressers would be the priests that were called to serve the people of God the servants sent out to, to inspect the fruit and see how things are going might be the prophets. And what did they do to all the prophets of the Old Testament? Stephen tells us that in the book of Acts, killed them, killed them all. Finally, God sends forth his only begotten son and what do they do? They will kill him. And Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen. So by what authority do you do these things? If Jesus says, by my Father, they will not accept it. They will not accept it. But somehow these ordinary people have been able to see and accept that Jesus truly is the Son of God. John one fourteen. John wrote that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We can see in him, any ordinary common person could see the power of God upon Jesus' life. John one eighteen: no one has seen God or seen the Father at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared or revealed him. At verse 17 and 18 of Luke 20, Luke writes, then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. We've come to the point of a decision. After the years of his ministry, everyone can see who he is. And there is that difficult moment of having to make a decision. You know, as Americans, we love to put off making a decision, don't we? We want a little more information. Well, I'll think about it. That's my personality. I'll think about it. I've shared that before. I am naturally an indecisive person. I've decided I am an indecisive person. But at some point, you have to make a decision. You can't play the I don't know anymore. And that indecision will lock you in a place of stagnant growth. Do you know that? How many times do you need to hear certain messages from God and you come to a moment of decision and you put it off? Do you know what happens over and over? If you do that to yourself, your heart becomes a little harder and a little harder. Did you know that? The Bible describes that as a calloused heart. I know what calluses were like because I was a gymnast. I did all six events, but at the beginning of the season, I had no calluses on my hands. Swing high bar, parallel bars, and I needed to toughen up my hands. And even now, my hand, people will shake my hand and go, man, you have tough hands. I go, yeah, I know I worked hard to get these tough hands. You don't want a tough heart. You don't want to be able to hear the voice of God and say no. That is not a strength. You need to be able to discern the voice of God and to be able to make a decision about what you're going to do about it. Well, what if I make the wrong decision? We can test out decisions and see if we're hearing right. But putting it off and putting it off and putting it off has such incredibly damaging consequences. And that's what is happening here with these Jewish leaders. And so Jesus says, This is it. This is the moment, and he's comparing himself to the cornerstone of any building which would be built. The church is is a building put together. We are living stones, Peter calls us. Each one of us is taken out of the quarry of the world, shaped, fit just right to fit in together. Jesus forms the cornerstone, the apostles coming together, and all of us fitting together. It's amazing. I was trying to remember a story I'd heard from Pastor Chuck years ago that in in the history of Israel building, I believe it was Solomon's temple. If, if that's not right, it would be Solomon's or Herod's, but... Um, in cutting these massive stones away from the site of the building, they would be many, many tons and cut and brought to the site and put into place. But they had put the foundation of the temple together and they still didn't have the cornerstone. And so the builders on site sent back word, word back to the quarry, well, we we can't start putting up the walls. We can't do anything else until you send us the cornerstone. Well, word comes back from the quarry to the builders. That was the first thing we sent. Look around. So they started looking around and out in a field, they found the cornerstone of the temple that had been received. They didn't know what to do with it. So what did they do? They rejected it the actual cornerstone of the temple. And they couldn't go any further starting to build the temple until they put the cornerstone in its place. That's a true story. And so Jesus has says, essentially, I'm the cornerstone. You have rejected the cornerstone, but the consequences of that are going to be uh, devastating to your lives. In Acts 4, Peter quoted this. Acts 4, 12, 4, 11, 12, he says, This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, nor for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 19 of Luke 20, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, for they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So the parable did its job. Their eyes are open. They get it. It did did its job. The illustration helped them understand this plain spiritual truth. Now, were they ready to receive it? No. They were not. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Verse 21, they asked him, saying, Teacher, now here's this last thing I want you to catch, and this is, this is amazing. Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. And you do not show partial favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So now they're pretending to want more information. Now we know that you don't show any favoritism to anyone. And so we have a question for you. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we all know it's a trick question, right? But there is an amazing lesson for you and I. And so Jesus knows their craftiness. He says, "Where, give me a coin whose inscription is on it, whose image is on it. Well, it's Caesar's image is on the Roman coin. So he says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And by that same principle, he says, pay unto God, what? what the things that are gods so he he's he's just so amazing but here's what i want you to see if that's true pay unto caesar the things that are caesar's also pay unto god the things that are gods uh, uh, unto that belong to god what does that have to do anything the reason they pay taxes to caesar is because caesar's image is on the coin It's you and I that bear the image of God. So therefore, by the same principle, you owe God your life. If the image of Caesar is on the coin, God's image is on your heart. And so there it is, a little bit more information. And the question is, what am I going to do with that? He, he is just turning up the heat in these last days, these last days of our ministry, of his ministry. So every Sunday, I say, Lord, what's the lesson I have to teach? Help me to get the, the Bible information correct. But then I say, Lord, what's the lesson that your people in Albany need to hear? Because again, I can teach you Bible knowledge all day. That's not hard. I just have to study. But I want to know, what is it that God wants to use to speak to your lives? And I believe that in this ordinary group of people, God is preparing you to do a work. The question is, are you able to see it? Are are you willing to respond to it? And are we coming together in a way that is fitting us together so that we're able to get the work done? Because you see, in the building process, there's always disruptions, isn't there? No, no project is easy. There's always problems. So you're growing and then you get opinionated and then you learn a little bit more. And so you go from loving people to being opinionated, hopefully to being uh, gracious. And it is always a challenge for us to grow in the Lord. The other challenge is for us to grow in our love for each other. Often I'm growing closer to the Lord and things that upset churches in their growth is how people relate to one another in the church. And so Paul said in Ephesians to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let's stand together and as we close the service, as I always do, I just want you to respond back to the Lord If I've done my job and brought you to a a moment of decision, then you have to respond to that decision or you don't have to, you can just resist that and say, well, I'll wait and think about that. But the decision I'm asking from you is to yield your life to the Lord to give up control, this supreme control of your life, and to put your life in the hands of the one who made you. Why would you give unto God the things that are God's? Because he made you. He created you. And that's where you're going to find your purpose and peace in life. The prayer team is up here during this last song. I invite you to just come forward for prayer. Prayer. Or you can stay in your seat, but uh, I just encourage you to respond back to the Lord.